Hey everybody, we're really excited to share this episode. Uh, we interviewed Sue from Hot 8 Mining. They are a Canadian Bitcoin mining company listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, we highly recommend you go check out their Twitter first thing because they have a pinned message that gives a little context into their operations. Uh, they have been around for three or four years and Sue has been with the company uh, for about a year and she does an amazing job of breaking down just exactly what the company does, why they do it and how they do it. Uh, there's a, quite a bit of discussion around the environmental impact. Uh, of Bitcoin within this episode as there's tons of banter uh, consistently on mainstream media that needs uh, dispelling and so we dive into that as well as additional discussion on just how to conceptualize Bitcoin in uh, in the world that we live in with institutions and countries now adopting it as their uh, as their preferred store of value. So like I said stay tuned um, go check out their Twitter and hope you enjoy this episode. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Margakshi Palwi, and the guests on the GoFull Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only. Hello, Sue. How are you doing? Hey, so good. Really happy to be chatting with you today with Bitcoin ripping and hut at all-time highs. <laughs> um, and love your podcast of the East Coast. Love the East Coast. I'm really happy to be here today. Oh, I'm really, really, really glad. Um, have you visited Nova Scotia before? No, I actually haven't, but I have a bunch of friends who went to Dalhousie um, and my dad's a newbie. So I'm a big fan of the East Coast. Yeah, you guys are great. Right on. All right. Well, I want to get j jump right into it. And I noticed that on your Twitter handle, you have this tweet pinned. And I, I'm very curious for you to get into that because um, it was tweeted on October 4th by Hot 8 Mining. Um, that you guys have 4,724 Bitcoin. Yeah, except I think that's a, that's, a, that's a decimal, not a comma. So I read that too. And I was like, well, if you had 4,724 <laughs> Bitcoin, like that would, that's, that's quite the profit. That's, that's quite the no, surprise. No, no. So we do have 4,724 Bitcoin on our balance sheet. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're not no. to someone in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no, we've, uh, we're one of the oldest and largest miners in the game, but we're also like OG hodlers in the space. So we were hodling and holding on to our Bitcoin long before most of our competitors were. Um, so that's like a big part of our strategy. We actually have um, the most self-mined Bitcoin of any publicly traded company in the world. So yeah, yeah, we're pretty pumped about that balance, especially given you know, the adoption that's happening. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's 4,724. Yeah. Wicked. I, I totally <laughs> thought I was misreading that, but I, uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm like, I'm happy that the number is a lot higher than, uh, yeah. than 4.7. Yeah. When did you start? Um, like when did had eight, when did we begin business? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so we've been around since late 2017, early 2018. Um, and why that matters is because we've been in the game for so long, we've also ridden obviously the bull markets, which are great, but also the bear markets. And we effectively do everything business-wise with that in mind, with the fact that like, sorry, with the fact that Bitcoin at any time could trade sideways, could trade down. 
So we've really like built our business with that in mind. So we try and build out, like we're always going to be core Bitcoin miners, but we also focus on like how many different lines of ancillary revenue can we build in order to keep the lights on, but still remain core Bitcoin miners. Right on. Have you been with Hot 8 Mining through its inception? No. So I've been with Hot 8 since last December. Um, they brought on a new CEO named Jamie Leverton. Well, I guess she's not new now, but Jamie was hot, like got in the chair December, 2020, like the first or second. And I was her third hire on December's first. Yeah. Her first hire on December uh, 16th. Cause had eight had never had a marketing team. They'd never had an IR team. So, um, so yeah, it's been her and I, and then she's obviously grown the team as well over the past year and, uh, yeah, making things happen. What goes into a, like a, a mining team, I suppose, like what kind of roles are, are required to maintain a, a healthy stream of, uh, of revenue? Yeah. So, so she hired a head of tech, this guy, Jason, which was super important. Um, there hadn't been a head of tech before and his role is basically to focus on obviously being an incredibly efficient miner, but also look at like different opportunities that are out there and how we can leverage them. Cause you guys know, like the blockchain space is constantly evolving. I've been in the space for four years and I still feel like, I don't know, like I'm learning every day. So we, she hired a head of tech, um, Jason, and then she hired a head of regulatory Tanya. So Tanya's bomb. She, um, she was instrumental in drafting some of the preliminary blockchain laws in Canada and, you know, we're also really focused on not only being like one of the largest and best and blue chip miners, but also like, how do we make sure that we're building relationships with government and regulators so that they make rules and regulation in the spirit of innovation and fostering innovation and not stifling innovation in this sector? Because Canada has such a huge opportunity to be leaders in the blockchain space. Like Ethereum was born in Ontario. So so yeah, she hired Tanya and then we hired a head of sustainability. And then, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, a new CFO who's, so yeah, those are some of the roles that, that we certainly needed in-house. Right on. And with respect to your entrance into the space, you said it was four years ago. Is that when you discovered Bitcoin? Yeah, that's when I was. So, um, my, uh, background is like traditional financial services which I was in for like a little over 10 years. Um, and I effectively found Bitcoin and blockchain uh, after really quite honestly being like, I'm too young inside to feel this dead inside at my job. Like I was perpetually frustrated with the way things were going on the back end in terms of how trades were settled. So I started researching like, well, there must be some technology that's coming down to like revamp these prehistoric dinosaur processes that are like running the financial services space in Canada. So that's why I found blockchain. And then it took me about a year to convince everyone in the Bitcoin and blockchain space in Toronto that I wasn't just another like finance D-bag getting on the bandwagon. Um, but yeah, that's how I got into it. Uh, it was more so like out of a strong disenchanted myth meant with like how the traditional financial services space was being, was operating. How, how is it still operating i mean and thank you for saying that because we ourselves have realized that it's built on very ancient technology dinosaur technology and um <laughs> legacy practices in place too like having it cost money to receive money uh, like overdraft funds and what the actual like an overdraft insurance does for you it's, it's all just 
left over from 50 years ago when it actually totally. kind of makes sense to have those fees in place because it was all manual. But now that things are digitized, it's like, well, does it really actually cost $45 for me to receive a wire transfer? It's crazy. In addition to that, how is it still functioning? Or like, do you foresee this is, you know, about the traditional financial system, of course, uh, if they aren't adapting the newer technologies that are out there, how long will they continue to last on legacy technology? Look, I think it's like, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist in the sense that I don't think it's Bitcoin or nothing, blockchain or nothing. Like, I, I really think there's a world where both traditional finance and then this nascent technology can interoperate. And there's lots of projects that are focused on that. Um, I, I think that the banks uh, and a lot of platforms are certainly well aware that, you know, if you don't evolve, you die. Like, so for example, MasterCard is now getting into the space. They're offering crypto rails to, I think they're like 100,000 merchant network. Um, the FDIC that regulates the banks in the US, um, they're looking at how can they create regulatory frameworks so that banks can now offer rails and collateral lab collateralized lending programs on crypto. So, so I definitely think the industry is evolving for sure. And then you have even like traditional banks and now offering like ETFs that help you invest in crypto and in the crypto space and funds. So it is evolving for sure. It's just taking a little bit longer, but that's to be expected when you're sort of, you know, redoing an entire financial system. Right. Yeah. And double clicking on the whole redoing the financial system here. Um, what, from your perspective, as someone who works in the mining industry, um, like how, how do you think about how scaling the Bitcoin network goes or like running the Bitcoin network goes in comparison to scaling and running the legacy financial system? Like what are the main differences that you've learned or come across? Well, I think, I mean, um, Bitcoin is a little different than other asset classes because it is incredibly energy intensive. So you do need to have scale. You need to have access to a tremendous amount of power that's relatively cheap. You need to also have a tremendous amount of equipment and infrastructure to do it. Um, but again, it is a fully decentralized global network and that doesn't exist anywhere in traditional finance. Like there is no completely decentralized no one governs it uh, platform available that's completely peer to peer. So that's like the real main difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah all we, we <laughs> right on. So getting back to the rest of this tweet, <laughs> um, here you said that new fleet of GPU miners installed in profitable mine ETH and then get paid in Bitcoin at less than $3,000. Canadian per coin. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah. So, so back to having a head of tech and why that's such a huge advantage as a miner. Um, we were looking earlier this year at different ways that we could get equipment, but also still diversify our operations. So, so we ordered these GPU miners from NVIDIA and it was a limited fleet. We were one of only three customers globally that we're actually able to get this, like, this is like the Ferrari of GPU miners. And for those of your audience who don't know, you mine Bitcoin with ASIC miners. That's a particular equipment that's only for ASICs, which is only for Bitcoin mining. But then GPU miners are um, an iteration of machine mining equipment that you use to mine Ethereum or other coins like Ethereum Classic, uh, Metaverse, I think um, Zcash. Like there, there's just a bunch of other altcoins that are you you mine using this technology. So we thought it was a really good idea to 
diversify because you want to have a diversified business. Like it's, it's always good to diversify. Um, and potentially get into GP mining GPU networks, but our head of tech came up with a strategy and our CEO of we're able to mine Ethereum, but then get paid out on the pool level. So a lot of miners join pools because you're effectively all working together to get to increase your statistical probability of winning the, the coin. Anyway, so we've joined, we joined Luxor pool. And so using that pool's um, offering, we're able to mine Bitcoin, but get paid out, sorry, mine Ethereum, but get paid out in Bitcoin and at a price of less than $3,000 Canadian per coin. So when Bitcoin's trading at like 63,000 bucks, those are obviously crazy near profit margins. So. Yeah. And how much by contrast does it cost to, to mine a Bitcoin with ASIC miners? It's um, I think the last person that we spoke to gave us a rough estimate of something like 9,000 US dollars. Uh, so that's for like pure electricity. Yeah. If you actually go into all the costs associated with mining a Bitcoin, so not just the cost of the electricity, but the, the amount you paid the guy to run the machine, any repairs that had to happen, the actual amount that you, you have to put towards paying off the machine, it's more like in like the 15K range. Um, but, but that's still crazy profitable, right? Like that's still a tremendous amount of margin. So, and so you've got these GPU miners mining Ethereum. And uh, in theory, we've got Ethereum moving to a, a purely proof of stake model at some point in the future. Um, what is the strategy for still making use of these GPU miners after that date? So, so um, we bought these GPU miners assuming that it would go to proof of stake within the year. But we just heard, I think a couple of weeks ago, they announced that it's been pushed off from... January 2022 to now May 2022. And I think, look, some of the people we've talked to on the ground think that Ethereum's never going to go to proof of stake just because it's not so much a technological issue, but it's, as you know, it's like a governance issue. And if anything goes wrong, then Ethereum loses its number two place, right? Globally. Yeah. And also all those applications and huge ecosystems that have been built are like done. So, so, um, but look, let's just say it goes to proof of stake. Uh, the way that these miners work is we'll just mine the, mo the next most profitable coin. So like we just switched to Ethereum Classic or Zcash or Metaverse. Like it still enables us to play in literally every other GPU-based altcoin. And if Ethereum does move to proof of stake and run the way that some people are forecasting, that should be like, that should lift all sales or whatever that voting term is. Um, <laughs> it should cause altcoins to also, you know, lift all boats and run as well. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's wicked. Thank you. Right. Now, so what I was wondering, you know, with respect to HUD8 mining, I saw that in, on your website in the investors tab, um, I was wondering or looking for how can people get involved with um, mining with you or, you know, how does that work? Yeah. So, so we don't have like a B to C part of our business because we are a publicly traded company. So like, if you're interested in investing, not in Bitcoin directly, but in businesses that are built on top of Bitcoin or benefit from Bitcoin, then you would just, you could buy us on the, on the stock market, on the TSX or on the NASDAQ. Um, and we are actually don't, I mean, we're at all time highs today. We were at about 
a buck when I joined in December. Now we hit about 19 bucks today. So it's like 10 months later. Um, so that's the best way that you can like invest in HUD8. I mean, we've certainly looked at really interesting not-for-profit organizations like Raspberry Pi. I would love for us to get involved in that. I don't know if we're going to do it, but I am pushing for it. And that basically helps people like set up their own node, which would be awesome. I would love to see that. So, yeah. Right on. And with like with your expansion plan, I guess, uh, even for B2B miners, what is there a specific um, geography that you're restricted to? Or, you know, is it Canada-wide, province-wide, North America? No, we can go wherever we want. Um, we can go wherever we want, but we love Canada um, <laughs> because it's freezing cold here. It's windy as hell. And those are, well, in particularly in Alberta and also North Bay, where we are now. And those are perfect conditions for mining. Like you want, because the machines do tend to run a bit hot. So we basically take advantage of free air cooling, which is awesome. Um, and uh, there's also a decent amount of renewables here. Like in Alberta, the grid is 30% wind and solar, which is great. So um, so we love Canada. That's not to say that we wouldn't expand beyond Canada. There's some really interesting stuff we've seen, like really all over the world, because this industry is getting such crazy adoption. But for now, we really love Canada. Right on. Well, with respect to harnessing renewables, your mining farms, are they um, partly on the grid, partly using renewables, completely using renewables? What's the equation there? Yeah, so they are. we are grid connected in Medicine Hat and Alberta. And I believe Alberta's grid is about 25 to 30 percent renewables, so solar and wind. Um, but there's there's a really interesting use case for miners partnering up further with renewable operators because one of the problems when you set up a solar farm or a wind farm is that there's there's a lot of intermittency because you can't really plan weeks in advance as to what direction the wind's going to blow in right so so but what bitcoin mining operations do is is because we mine 24 7 we technically can be off takers of that of that of those periods of peak high demand where the grid get, gets congested um or you know if if the grid is is sort of you know having a low um energy profile miners can easily power down their machines to give the grid more more energy so so there's a lot of like really cool stuff happening out of texas with miners um you know sort of potentially looking at partnering up in the solar and wind space and um yeah it's 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 cool so, so bitcoin mining kind of acts as like a buffer for the energy grid in that sense yeah that's a great way of putting it yeah um, has your, has getting new miners been an issue at all because of the supply chain breakdowns that we've experienced? Yeah. So there's definitely, I mean, there's supply chain issues everywhere. Right. Um, but, but so what we did was, um, one of the things that we really focused on, I mean, we were going to do it anyways, but we really sort of accelerated. This was we became an authorized micro BT repair shop. MicroBT for your audience, they're one of the um, largest and like dominant mining manufacturers out of China, but we're now the authorized repair shop for North America and Northern Europe. So what that means is we're actually closer to the supply chain now because we get greater access to machine parts. MicroBT is relying us on us to make sure North America has enough uptime. So, so we've actually strategically gotten ourselves closer to the supply chain, but 
Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone's feeling the shipping delays for sure. So are you also shipping, are you, are you a secondary supplier to North America because of your authorized authorization? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, so, so hang on. So sorry. <laughs> We're not like shipping machines, but when someone's machine breaks down, um, they would ship it to us and we would fix it for them. And then MicroBT would also make sure that we have enough parts in order to facilitate like ship, like machines being, um, repaired and going out. And what's cool about it again, from an ESG perspective, is it what reduces, ESG, sorry? Oh, uh, environmental, social, and governance perspective. So from an environmental perspective, what's cool about us now being an authorized repair shop is it reduces the carbon footprint that we create by shipping our broken machines overseas. Cause we don't do that anymore. And that's like a carbon footprint. And also we help North American people reduce their carbon footprint also with shipping, um, machines overseas. So, Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I'm not the ESG specialist, but like, it is pretty cool when you can look at all the different ways that you can just do things a little better. You know what I mean? So well, how efficient are the miners after they get repaired or, you know, if mm -hmm. they do break down, uh, what's the lifespan of the miner? So we, we have the most conservative lifespan. We say two years, we build all of our models around that. But honestly, the machines we're seeing, like we're able to push even some of our older equipment upwards of like four to five years. So, so that's why there is a pretty robust secondary market of older equipment that's still going right now, because um, these machines are actually built like, like brick shit houses. Like they're like really sturdy. Um, so you can actually get quite a bit of wear and tear out of them um, longer than what sort of the label says. Right on. And are you using the heat produced by the mining farms to um, cool, not, not cool down, but dry um, as a secondary heat source? I guess, let me rephrase this question. We've, uh, from our research, we've noticed that there are some facilities around the world where they reuse the heat to either heat their homes if they are in the basement or the miners are in the basement or you can dry herbs with it. You can dry other raw materials with it, heat a greenhouse. Are you using the secondary heat for something? So I love the idea of a greenhouse next to our mining operation. Our head of power is actually looking into that. I think he was pretty far in talks with like a mushroom farmer. Yep. I, I don't know where that's gone, but that's absolutely something we were looking at. Um, and then on our third site in North Bay, yes, we will be using the excess heat from the machines to melt the snow around um, the operations and also heat the building. So I forget what it's called. I was talking about this on a, on a podcast earlier today. I think it's a closed loop system, but yeah. yeah so yes, we are using, we are putting that excess heat to work. Uh, right on. Well, I was, I want to take this conversation more into the energy consumption of things, because this is something that I personally am trying to wrap my head around. And my general consensus on the things is that it can't be as black and white as this is good for the environment, or this is bad for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm still trying to reconcile with the resources that are used to power Bitcoin mining farms. And you know, I, I'd love to know your perspective on what the energy consumption is. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Not necessarily if it's good or bad or whatever. 
Yeah. So I would certainly look into the work that the Bitcoin Mining Council is doing. And um, we're one of the founders of the Bitcoin Mining Council. So was Michael Saylor. Um, Elon Musk was on our preliminary call. Um, and basically what the Bitcoin Mining Council is about, it's also like the CEOs of all the top miners in North America are on this council. And it's effectively an education consortium about educating the market that it's not nearly as polluted as the media has, and quite frankly, uneducated pundits on the matter have made it seem. So, so of the total global energy landscape, Bitcoin consumes 0.12%. So less than a percent of the, um, of the total energy that's out there, Bitcoin uses. Uh, in China, for example, before China shut down mining, that the, the, um, the sources of power was actually 77% hydro and renewables. Um, and then, like I said earlier, there's an argument to be made that we actually help make it more economically feasible and viable for renewable operators to actually set up shop because we're a 24 seven customer versus it's incredibly cost prohibitive. If I'm trying to set up a solar or wind farm and I have these congestion issues or issues of low demand there, that's, that's like, we we help, like you said, buffer that sort of um, latency issue that actually prevents some of the operators from really going full throttle in, into the renewable space. Um, so there's an argument to be made there as well about that. But I would highly suggest like you check out the Bitcoin Mining Council and just some of the works that they've published because it's pretty interesting research as to some of the misconceptions that are out there about just how bad mining is for the industry. So. Well, one thing that um, I I feel like is lacking in any sort of news piece in particular is the fact that energy is required to produce anything, and okay. the fact and the fact that you know like this is Bitcoin consumes more energy than X Y Z or the so and so country. I feel like that really doesn't drive a point home. Because what are you trying to say? It uses this much. It uses more energy than the country of. Um, Oh gosh, Argentina, what in Argentina for example, yeah. like name any small country, but, and it's kind of the light that is put on, it's kind of portrayed in a negative light because it's like, oh, it's consuming more energy than this country shut Bitcoin down. And I find that it's such an uneducated perspective on the consumption of energy period, not necessarily because it's being used for mining Bitcoin. Totally. Um, have you like, has someone, you know, directly, I guess, asked you, um, you know, how to combat that or has that ever been an argument? Oh my God, it's totally been an argument. And, you know, I just fire back, you know, no one seems to mind that Christmas lights over <laughs> the three weeks during Christmas use more energy than Poland in a year. No one seems to be asking how much energy does the U.S. use, making sure that everyone uses the U.S. dollar. Like how much money do they spend on war? Like no one asked that. Um, so just to your point, that's why the mining council exists is because like there does need to be sort of a coordinated education effort on behalf of the industry. And that's what the Bitcoin mining council is um, because there's still so much honestly, honestly, like under research nonsense that's put out there. So. Right on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. What was the council that you talked about? I just want to open it in my it's tab. The Bitcoin, here. Mining the, mining the Bitcoin mining council. You should. Should be able to find them on Twitter, I think under Bitcoin Mining Council. 
Oh yeah, um, no, they have a website, bitcoinminingcouncil.com. <laughs> yeah, nice. Nice. Good. Easy find. Okay. So with respect to regulations, I'm wondering if when it was time to say open a bank account or even um talk to the authorities when you wanted to set up your mining farms, did you face any sort of pushback or um any restrictions on being able to set this up? So not that I know of for HUD 8, just because we do pride ourselves on being doing really clean business. Like we have a very thorough CFO. Our CEO, Jamie, comes from the traditional tech space. So we, so not that I know of, but I have worked on other projects for sure that were incredibly legit, um, but they couldn't get banking. Like it's, you know, it's still a space that a lot of regulators don't understand, but I do think that's changing. Like I said, like the U.S. is, the FDIC in the U.S. is trying to figure out regulatory frameworks so banks can participate. Um, it is getting better, but but and so I, I don't know if HUT encountered that. I don't I don't know, but I know other projects that I've been on for sure. It's been almost impossible. Um, so, right on. Um, and lastly, I kind of just wanted you to touch on the story behind HUT Eight because when I was on your website, I found it really intriguing. Um, that it was because of Alan Turing. What's, yeah. what's the process behind coming up with that? Yeah, I think like, look, at the end of the day, um, some of the founders of the company just sort of put their heads together and were like, okay, again, Alan Turing, the tremendous coder who cracked the um, the under the Nazi regime code. And I forget, you know, we have amazing German investors who were like, you don't call it the Nazi code. I forget what it was called. Enigma. Yeah. So, but, um, I think just at the end of the day, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain ecosystem is code, right. And math. And we just love, yeah, we just thought that was cool. Right on. Well, for everybody listening, definitely, um, recommend checking out hot8mining.com, um, and on their website, the story behind hot8 and just like, I love all of the information that you have put out on your website. The thing that I found, um, really cool was how open and transparent you have been, you know, even simply with your tweet talking about how much Bitcoin you have in reserve and like mm. you said, that your, your business has been super clean. And I, I feel like I, it's quite evident with the amount of information that you have put out there. Did you ever need to do any sort of education or educating your investors when you were looking for investors? investors yeah yeah for sure it's like an ongoing education effort but that's also why like i love coming on podcasts like yours just to like chat with people um and just get more info like we love that we're part of the bitcoin mining council just because again it's the more education and awareness the better um but for sure it's an ongoing process and again like i said i don't know if we're going to do this just yet but i'd love for us to be part of raspberry pi which is all about helping people get involved i think that would be amazing so um so yeah is there a particular kind of question that like you haven't been asked on other podcasts but it's a topic that you like would want us to ask you um like basically giving you free reign to to address whatever has gone left undiscussed on other shows well i feel like you guys are super bright and you ask a lot of the questions that the other super bright podcasters ask but one of the things I'm really interested in talking more about um, is 
what I heard on Anthony Pompliano, one of his recent podcasts with this guy named Greg Foss. So Greg Foss is a friend of HUD 8's and he's been in the like high yield credit, traditional fixed income market for like 35 years. And he's brilliant. Anyways, he broke it down in a really interesting way. So a lot of people are always like, Bitcoin versus gold. Bitcoin is going to beat gold. No gold and Bitcoin. Like there's all these arguments with Bitcoin versus gold. But we need to stop comparing Bitcoin to gold and start comparing Bitcoin to fixed income. So fixed income, traditional 60-40 portfolios, almost all institutions have some uh, fixed income in their portfolios because that's just how the mandates have been built. And also the fixed income market and, and bond market effectively had like a 40-year run. So you could you know, earn some income off this fixed income uh, and, and it was safe because governments would have to, could raise taxes to pay you back if anything defaulted. So anyways, the fixed income market or the credit market is $119 trillion. Because of all this COVID related money printing and just like really wacky monetary policy that a lot of countries have adopted because of COVID, 15% or 15 trillion of that 119 trillion of in credit is actually negative yielding debt, which means you don't have an asset on your balance sheet. You have a liability. It's loser money. As the market, the Bitcoin market gets bigger and more institutions are like, oh my God, how the hell am I going to hedge against this like melting money that I hold in my portfolio? And people start looking at Bitcoin, gold, real estate, art. Um, if, if Bitcoin were to capture even three to 5% of that 119 trillion of like credit market and people who could potentially be like, oh shit, I need a plan B or something to hedge against this. That's like two to 4 million bucks per Bitcoin. Cause there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be created. So if you take 5% of 119 trillion divided by 221 million, that equals two to 4 million per coin. If you take three to 5%, that was a lot of math. I had to literally listen to the podcast like four times before I was able to even repeat this. But I guess I'm just saying, I think we're still in the innings of where Bitcoin could go. And that's really cool. And do you guys own Bitcoin? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're actually like, our nice. podcast is called Go Full Crypto, but like it, like our pseudo joke is that it really should be called Go Full Bitcoin because nice. where at least 95% of our holdings actually lie. Yeah. We don't oh, really consider Bitcoin to be an investment. We've like, we did initially, but at some point we kind of just converted all of our Canadian dollar into Bitcoin. As, and long, as well as our, our business yeah, tax for reserves our as well. Business and our personal. So we're like 95% wow. Bitcoin and then 5% for expenses that, you know, we can't really pay yeah. with card yeah. or... Or like other yes. cryptocurrencies that kind of like help supplement our lifestyle of, <laughs> of going full crypto. Cool. Like we've got the crypto.com visa debit card, but in order to get a, a nice one, you kind of have to buy some CRO and we're like, okay, well, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're Bitcoin mostly. Um, <laughs> resonate with what you said earlier with about not being a Bitcoin maximalist and not having that toxic uh, vibe to you, but uh, yeah. like we're, we're Bitcoin <laughs> mostly and like we're totally accepting of whatever other coins people want to hold. It's up to them, honestly. Yeah. So what um, what price did you guys get in at for Bitcoin? So I got in at 2015. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've been in it for a bit. And Rick, actually, you I'm, got in. 
It was in 2018 after the bubble popped. And I was, I, we've recovered this on our episodes before, but I actually bought Bitcoin off of Keegan because he was freaking out during the, the, the bull run. And then, you know, during the bubble of 2017. So he was the one who got me interested in, uh, in it. And it's kind of become our lifestyle or business ever since 2018 and 2018. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah, I well, I like initially, like you know, going back to the whole Bitcoin maximalism. I see tweets here and there where um, on Bitcoin Twitter, where if someone shares an opinion that is not that doesn't rhyme with somebody else's opinion, who probably has more um, more force, I guess, with Bitcoin, um, I find that like people can get ambushed because of sharing some of their opinions just because they're slightly different or whatever. And I find it so negative in general to that particular scenario for spreading someone's opinion. Yeah. It's also like, like we're still in the early innings of this industry. And I just feel like sometimes like guys, I, I get where the maxis are coming from. I do. I do. But like, Bro, that's not how we're going to actually win if we're constantly in fighting. Because right. there's even like fighting in the community, right? And it's like, we need to be aligned in order to succeed and thrive against these bigger boys. Like we need to have some serious internal alignment. And yeah, I just, I agree with you. It, it can get a little out of hand and I just, yeah. But I, I do see where the maxis, like I get the maxis. I'm just like strategically, I'm like, guys, we need to fucking be united for us. So I want to go back to the, the, the conversation that you started about fixed income because uh, I yeah. think really interesting points to touch on there. Um, I, I actually really do like the comparison of Bitcoin and gold, but I also like the comparison. Like it doesn't, it's not like Bitcoin's limited to only being compared totally. to gold. This, this whole thing of comparing it to uh, to the credit market is, is really great too because of, yes, those, those negative yields. Um, like where I would like a little bit more of an elaboration from you is uh, well, Bitcoin doesn't produce an income just by holding it exclusively, right. lend it and whatnot. But uh, like, how do you reconcile that comparison when you're trying to like bridge that gap with someone in a conversation? And you say, "Yo, don't think about it as gold. Think about it as like a placement or a hedge for this." Uh, like the common critique would be, "Well, it doesn't produce me an income." Like, like yeah, this would. But at the same time, like the fixed income market has has changed. Like I said, like over 15 trillion is negative yield. Like you're actually like paying for loser money. So, um, I, you know, and again, I, I got this off of Greg Foss. These are not like my independent, I came up with this idea myself, but he was basically describing it as it's fire insurance. When you live in a hot zone, when you live in a fire zone, if you live on the smoke belt, so it's fire insurance against like the melting traditional fiat system, which we are seeing with this never ending printing in COVID or because that started because of the COVID pandemic. Um, wait, are you guys still there? You just froze. Yeah. So I think you were saying like, how would I position why Bitcoin versus fixed income is a better, um, parallel versus Bitcoin versus gold. Um, and again, I, I still definitely agree with the Bitcoin versus gold, but I do think that generally people should be saying, like look at Bitcoin versus fixed income. And how I would explain that is it's effectively uh, a, like it's an insurance policy against a melting fiat system. Um, so, you know, 15 trillion in negative yielding debt, the more and more governments continue to print and try and print their way out of sort of this pandemic related 
a disaster from an economic perspective, it's only going to increase. Slash, I don't, I don't know how it would change otherwise. So, so, you know, gold is a hedge against a melting fiat system, art, real estate, but Bitcoin is too. And it's, and it's, I just think it's more, it's, yeah, sure. It doesn't really pay you like a, a raging income, but for example, fixed income uh, in the eighties, I think was paying like, paying out like 10%, but now a, U, a 10 year US treasury is like a percent and a half, if even like the bull market is over in fixed income. So why not hold an asset on your balance sheet that can hedge against that or invest in a proxy Bitcoin asset, like a miner who has like a ton of Bitcoin on their balance sheet and is building blockchain and Bitcoin related businesses. So anyways, that's, that'd be my answer. And if they don't get it, like whatever. <laughs> yeah. That, no, that might, do you want to say something? Well, no, just about the gold and Bitcoin comparisons. I think they're great for explaining what Bitcoin is, but mm. at the same time, when the internet came out, I'm not sure what analogy was used to talk about the internet. <laughs> Because yeah, it was revolutionary, right? Like it, it wasn't something that anybody had ever even probably even the imagined on kind of comparison um, on a yeah. larger scale. Um, and with respect to Bitcoin, I see why. Uh, in order to understand this magic internet money that exists on the internet and has value because people believe it has value is hard to comprehend just because it's so simple. Like I kind of think that the complexity in that is because of its simplicity. And uh, like, I really wonder the further that we go into adopting Bitcoin, um, like how do you think that's gonna impact everybody's, um, I, I guess, finances, not on the not on the business level, but also the retail level. Well, the business level is a really interesting conversation as well. Like I personally wish that we had more businesses contacting us that, had a little bit more courage to even allocate a, a small percentage of their cash reserves because I don't really know many businesses that that don't save in in the in dollars, whether that be U.S. dollar or Canadian dollar. Um, if they're saving at all, it's it's in assets. You know what though? I think that will change. Um, like you even have, I think it was the teachers' pension plan. Yeah made a Bitcoin company investment. I know the fireman's plan, I forget out of which state pension plan added to a Bitcoin investment. So I think that will start to change, but it's like, it just is going to take some time, but I think that will start to change. That's true. I think we are definitely underestimating. What's that quote that by Bill Gates, you underestimate how much progress can take place in a span of 10 years and overestimate how much progress you will experience in a span of a year. Yeah. And and just, well, speaking of the past 10 years, since 2011, Bitcoin's come such a long way and no one would have anticipated in 2011. I I don't even think Satoshi Nakamoto themselves would have in, could have imagined what Bitcoin was going to become. And it's, it's sort of like this, this thing that people have adopted because they see value in it. And the more people that see value in it will adopt it and so on and so forth. Yeah. I'm going to set you up for a, uh, um, like a home run here in a second, just because <laughs> there's a conversation here around um, the, the fixed credit and whatnot. And like one of the questions that we usually get is like, I'm too late for Bitcoin. Um, and like, we kind of give them the gold comparison to say like, no, look, like gold's $10 trillion asset. Like maybe there's that growth. And then, you bringing the whole uh, the 
the fixed income and, and, and the credit conversation into this, like, does that factor in here to where Bitcoin is going and, and yeah, helping people and that they're not too late? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely think that is a good analogy um, in terms of, like I said, if it captures three to 5% of the $119 trillion credit market, but also look, there's also, there's also, um, so it's not too late. You can also buy Satoshis. You can buy like little baby Bitcoins. You can, and so basically dollar cost average into owning a whole Bitcoin. Um, you can, again, invest in ancillary Bitcoin companies. So not just like HUD8, but like Voyager Digital is a great company that I actually worked for. Uh, I was advising them for about a year. I sold my options like an idiot at $1.80 thinking I was making bank. And then it went to like 20 bucks six weeks later. I like still can't talk about it. It still like hurts my heart, but like, but like they, but they, they, they're a trading platform that makes money on either side of the trade. Right. So, so like you can still invest in Bitcoin and blockchain related businesses that are really strong and really cool. Like they just signed a deal with the Dallas Mavericks. I don't really know what they're going to do, but um, it's cool. So, so it's not too late at all to start building your portfolio. Plus like, you know, a lot of people are saying that, um, Ethereum's also going to run. I heard the other day an $8,000 Ethereum target. So if Ethereum runs that far, you can bet that absolutely some of the other project and coins in the space, it should lift all sales. Um, and, you know, there's some really interesting projects that are focused on interoperability in Web 3.0, like Polkadot, like Solana. There's some projects like Chainlink. Uh, who are effectively going to be data oracles. And I believe they just signed a deal with Reuters to provide data oracles on, on the blockchain, but also in partnership with Reuters. So point is, and all those points are still trading at like sub 200 bucks. Like there's absolutely still a way to play in this space. You just have to do a little bit of your own research. Um, and really sorry, I actually have to roll right at three o'clock. Um, so sorry about that, but I- You're not, just, no worries. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, for uh, just to leave our audience with a way that they can get in touch with you and mm-hmm. you know, get in touch with HUD8 Mining, where can they find you? Yeah, they can certainly find me on Twitter. I'm at Big Suey, B-I-G-S-U-E-Y, um, or just at HUD Mining on Twitter. If you send me or the HUD8 Mining page a DM, I manage obviously both. Um, happy to chat with anyone anytime. Um, and again, just happy that there's people like you, like proper hobbling OGs in the space, because um, there just needs to be more people like you, like getting the word out there. And I think it's great. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on our show today, Sue. This was great, not only for us, but also for our listeners and everybody listening. Go follow Sue, ask her any more questions that you might have um, and stay tuned. Yeah, thank you.